Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca, a co-host, teacher and socialist in Bilipson, and community organizer and socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnote.com. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, uh, share your favorite episodes, uh, down, down our information where you found this episode. Thanks. All right. Uh, so today we are going to continue our exploration, our discussion on Diego Rivera uh, versus Orozco's work, mostly be focusing on Diego Rivera's uh, work as it relates to modernity, socialism, and science, technology. Um, and we're joined by our uh, our own uh, Alison McDowell, <laughs> uh, researcher and blogger and um, independent researcher. At, she is at, over at Renting the Gears and we'll post the link to her uh, uh, site in the episode notes. Uh, very well known uh, a researcher has done amazing work on uh, the privatization of public education. And of course, everything's anonymous to blockchain and data. <laughs> uh, thank you, Alison, for joining us again. Thanks. Right. So let's start off with just um, a quick roundabout of what we, our take, our response to last week's part one of this series uh, on the Mexican muralists and um, the analysis of what we've been discussing. Uh, maybe we'll start off with um, Andy. Yeah, um, so that that episode, in addition, it was it was it was one of our longer episodes, but it was also it I just had a lot of different feelings during that episode. Um, I really I love Diego Rivera. I love his work. I don't know him, but I, I've loved his work. I'm really drawn to it. Um, and I still the case. Um, but I think in listening that those quotes I found about Rivera and his relation in relationship to his work, his intention, his, his propagandistic intentionality. I don't say that in a negative way. I say that he's intentional. He's like, I'm trying to use this as a piece of propaganda. And Orozco, who basically was like, no, I do my art for art's sake. It has its own meaning of itself because it's art. Um, it made me think about actually how, it, you know, Brian, my best friend is a, um, I think he's a great artist. And, but one of my criti internal criticisms of him as a fellow Marxist is why is your work not so political? Um, like, why isn't it about this political thing and that political thing? And there are some songs he has, but he doesn't, he just produces songs that come out of him. He just happens to be a political person. And sometimes it has a political angle and other times you can't really hear it so much, but I do think his work is beautiful. And I think it, this, this last week's episode kind of, helps cement the idea that I think I'm with Orozco on my notion of, of art and politics. Like your art just has to be your art. Um, I'm not an artist myself, but it, it, it left me with that feeling and a, and a kind of a deeper appreciation of what Brian is doing. <laughs> it's random, but that's, that's what I think. Um, and I still love Diego Rivera's work, but I like the way Orozco approaches it. And I suspect when we get to him, I wonder if I'll see more truth in it than in 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 Diego Rivera's intentionality. So I just wanted to share that. For me, it's I think a continuation of a inner debate that I've always had. Um, that's just become more apparent to me in terms of engineering society 
and that involves uh, propaganda, right? And uh, whether it be for a certain purpose or not. Um, you know, like I've, I've had a problem with, uh, you know, like the cultural revolution of Mao and things like that. I had a problem with, you know, Cuba's, uh, you know, um, engineering certain parts of society too, you know, culturally. Um, and, and so, so it brings me to question my own beliefs on what I believe socialism is or should be, communism and all that, because I, I don't want to believe in a society where uh, I'm told what to do, you know, absolutely. And that's one of the, the biggest uh, fears that people have when they hear socialism and, and, and Marxism and communism, uh, because those have been the experiments, you know, and, um, and so that's what it's a state here, I guess, between these two worldviews, you know, um, because uh, I want to live in a society that has individuals uh, living the best life um, in, you know, respecting nature uh, in, well, also put it, you know, I do, I, I do like science. I do think there is a role that in answering questions for the betterment of everyone, but, um, you know, it, but again, this has brought difficult questions, right? Like, can we take technology and, Take the, the tools of the masters, like you, the quote that you brought uh, last episode, Alison. Can we take the tools of the masters and build our own house? You know, can we even destroy that house? Um, and so, again, there's still these questions. I have more questions than answers at this point uh, because it is two different worldviews. Uh, I do tend to lean a little more to the Orozco. It's like you, you say what you have to say. This is what I have to say. We can have a conversation and a dialogue but don't impose your view on me. And I think that's where uh, I have an issue with like Diego Rivera and we brought up how he was connected to the Rockefellers because I, I see that in my community, you know, yes, people that mean well, they have a, you know, a way, but once you're chosen and selected, you know, there's, you know, some things that need to be questioned at that point, but when you're selected by the powers that, that be. And so um, that is, those are my inner, questions, conflicts, conversations uh, over these, you know, two worldviews. Yeah. I think what uh, stood out for me is just (laughs) Hernan Cortes representing more than a white colonizer. It was more of this, like, I saw him more depicted as this digital colonizer, you know, (laughs) this technological colonizer, this person with, uh, um the you know because i you know in in the usa usually it's framed as the discoverers like christopher christopher columbus coming over and you have um you have uh, Hernan cortez representing but they're all discussed now progressively as well it's not that they discovered they're discussed more now and framed in the context of they were actually white European colonizers that came on over took up the indigenous, and they were, right? Uh, but in this framework, um, which is what I see it more as to what's happening today, I see it as more of a um, technology and the digital colonization of our people today and how that is what we are, what's happening to us as it what happened in the past. And uh, so I thought that was marvelous in the way that that one piece that Alison had put on the slides um, was really cool for us to uh, just frame it to our current situation as well. 
the AI told me that I was muted. <laughs> guys. Um, so anyway, I just, I feel really fortunate that um, you guys were willing to sort of engage in this material. So I'm, I feel very grateful to have like a sounding board for this because I think it's, it's the livening discussion and the point of view, particularly being that you guys have like co connections to that part of the world. I think it's, it was great. Um, for me, you know, one of the things I, I've been looking at a lot is like the politicization politicization of art, like even as a social impact space, right? And then our willingness to interrogate some of the mythologies, not, not just of, you know, United States as an empire, but then also some of the, the heroes, right? Because they, they, they construct, there are constructed identities that are then given to the public, which may or may not be fully aligned with the actual real people <laughs> and how we, you know, the distance of consuming um, our understandings, not only of, of artists, but of places. And so I'm really looking forward today a little bit, um, especially starting off with this allegory of California to um, situating Rivera within the context of artwork created in the Bay Area and what that means about these larger um, themes of colonization and progress and technology. So um, I think, let me, let me do my screen sharing. Okay, so I think, so, so yeah, the allegory of California, um, I framed it, there was an, uh, an article that I came across that was looking at Diego Rivera and biotechnology. And so I kind of call it the machined garden because I think a lot of the identification of California is around its um, agricultural legacy and the land of, sun and bounty, um, but then how that interfaces with legacies of domination, particularly around um, the California mission system and displacement of the original people. Uh, so this is uh, his, I believe it was his first commission in the US, uh, which is it's called the Allegory of California. I'm sorry, I can't get the picture bigger. That's just the orientation on the slide. Um, but when I initially looked up and saw, oh, his first commission was in the, the stock exchange building of, of San Francisco. Well, that, that's quite interesting. Um, and so this image itself is in a stairwell and it's a stairwell that leads to, I believe like the lunchroom area. Like a lot of these, these things seem to be around where people dine. And it, it took me a while of looking at these images to actually find one of the whole stairwell. And when you see it in the context of the whole stairwell, it actually is painted, it, it's, it's very tall because it says you're going up the stairs, it's the wall of the stairwell. And then it, and it goes up onto the ceiling. And then on the ceiling, um, the young woman who's presented here is actually a, a nude and sort of like diving across the ceiling in, in the luncheon room of the stock exchange, which I thought was, was quite interesting. Um, so again, we, we spoke in the last uh, the last session a bit about the contradiction even within uh, the communist party circles in Mexico of them looking upon Rivera and sort of askance at the relationships he made and, and the work that he was doing um, in California with these elite, with this elite group. Yeah, so this is the spring of 1931. Most of these murals are within a two, three year period. Um, again, it was at the San Francisco Stock Exchange. And um, let's see, I would just, uh, this is from the Allegories of Life, Gender, Labor and Biotech 
Diego Rivera's Allegory of California. Um, and I'll just read that because I think it, it harkens to some of the, the discussions we had the last time about the role of science and materialism versus faith and spirituality and sort of Western uh, socialist communist thinking and indigenous frameworks and how that fits in California. So this is the last paragraph in this article about um, Rivera and sort of labor and biotech. Uh, Rivera's mural was a powerful rendering of California's cultural landscape. Its central theme was the relationship of culture to nature in fostering growth in California. Okay, so it's culture and nature. When Rivera looked at California, he did not see the hand of God shaping the sublime and timeless nature as an Alfred Bierstadt or perhaps even an Ansel Adams might have. To be sure, Rivera saw nature, but everywhere he also saw the hand of man. His landscape was cultural. It was a view of the land transformed by people. And so I think that speaks to the, the domination aspect. And it goes on to talk about, there's a section about the machined garden. And for me, this feels really important because I had just been doing some research. The image on the right is actually a project funded by the EU where they were working with nanotechnology and robotics to essentially influence natural growth through machine systems and nanostructures. And essentially setting that up like that that was an optimal way to be, that we, we should contain nature within this machine system, which is the machine garden. And so in this article, it goes on to say, Rivera's California as Arcadia was clearly not stuck in some timeless idol. Instead, the rationality, the techniques of culture, and he followed the westward expansion narrative by gendering these elements as male, were bringing change. The figure of natural cornucopia is surrounded by icons of industrialization, oil derricks, ocean liners, refineries, a crane, a dredging machine, an airplane. Beneath her skirt, that is the strata of the earth, are the hard rock miners, and above, a redwood has been chopped through. An engineer holding a primary emblem of science and technology, the compass, um, is planning a scheme, no doubt, for the control of nature, which is simul often simultaneously a plan for the control of culture in disguise. In short, she is surrounded by an industrial whir, a growth machine, indeed the collection of technological objects assembled in the mural makes the landscape appear and then cuts off to be subsumed. So I'm gonna just like scroll back to that image. And, um, oh, I have the arrow there with the compass <laughs> because later on there's quite a bit about Freemasonry and compasses figure quite prominently, compasses and these calipers in his paintings as well as planes. And I, I will note um, again, uh, Howard Hughes is such a larger than life figure in California that also is his money and um, legacy within the Howard Hughes um, Memorial Institute is playing a large, large role in bio nanotechnology. Uh, but again, a very male centered use of nature with the industrialization behind the woman who's actually, and I think I'll come across this later, but she's was like a young tennis star at the time that this, this was in the twenties and thirties, she was sort of like a teenage global superstar of tennis. And so she was chosen as sort of the, the representation of California. Okay, so you can see here the stairwell and I apologize, it's not a greater image, but underneath this hand, so that's the skirt, it's a bit provocative. And the, the mining, the mining is happening underneath um, the skirt with the redwood cut off. 
and them, you know, making their, their various plans of using the nature's resources. And then above that is the, the figure who is, you know, vaulting um, the nudes over the stairwell um, with more airplanes. <laughs> so that's the luncheon room of the stock exchange. Um, and, oh, Helen Will Wills, Helen Wills is, is the young tennis star. And he's, again, it's quite a, you know, both Rivera and Kahlo, you know, were known for their uh, prominent sex lives and multiple partners and things. So there's there's a sexualization uh, element going on there as well. Um, I will just say this goes back to the Detroit murals that we talked about last time in making the connection between the machined garden is that, and we'll go into this in more detail later on go, as we progress to the Detroit murals, but that in that space, in the Detroit um, Art Institute, it was a garden court. <laughs> it literally was a courtyard that had tropical plants, which was not unusual for that time. And there was no ornamentation on the walls beyond the plants. And then after Rivera completed his mural, um, I, I think there might be a few plants like here, like at the bottom, but essentially the garden was taken out of the court and it was replaced with technology um, in that space. And in one of the articles at the time, one of the industrialists who got the early bird tour, they were saying like, well, this used to be a really nice room with a really nice garden and like you put all this technology in it. Um, so yeah, so let me just go back. I don't know, we'll maybe leave it on this one. Do you guys have elements, I guess of this? And, and I also wanted to unpack a little bit of, um, you know, the allegory of California, like what, as Californians, and me being an East Coaster, I mean, I'm very, like, I don't think until I started really digging into educational technology and like video game design and some of these other elements that I, I didn't really have a clear understanding of the degree to which the military industrial complex was so closely woven into California's like entertainment industry. And, um, and while California is sort of lifted up again, is, is this, you know, you know, the depression era ever, you know, the, the, the Okies, everyone went to California to sort of find their bliss, but then ultimately it ends up being in an industrial agricultural zone with really predatory labor practices. And, um, and all of this overlaid on top of a larger history of, um, you know, the, the, the mission system and colonization of first, you know, Mexico and then the US. The stereotype is that it's very progressive, um, but clearly the, the, the pandemic has uh, cast Another, a new light on the, the policies of, of California. And I'm just curious for you guys who have spent a lot, you know, considerable time there. Uh, what is your, what is your sense of like looking at the painting, your experience in California, has it changed being a left-leaning person before, after the pandemic? And, you know, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Kenny? Yeah. So at least for me, um, so I mainly live in San Francisco. Uh, I lived abroad in Nicaragua in my adult life. Uh, so I actually left during the Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, kind of beginnings in the public domain. So coming back, uh, the political kind of sphere had changed. You know, the, the identity politics took root. I, I actually didn't understand, you know, what that was about. And so, you know, again, we're just progressive pocket, right? Supposedly uh, San Francisco. 
and I, and I would say that in my interpretation, like LA has a similar, you know, vibe and somewhere in between supposedly there is this uh, conservative pockets, right? Like outside of these two cities, you know, any, everyone else is kind of like a red, you know, like a Republican. Um, and that, that, that's kind of the notion that, you know, gets like thrown out there. And on top of that, you know, so in the middle, you have a lot of agricultural, you know, uh, stuff. Uh, but then, you know, when you go get near San Francisco and in San Francisco, you have a lot of tech, you go down to like San Diego uh, and like the, you know, SoCal area, um, you see like uh, more tech in the military in San Diego. Um, and, you know, um, we live in San Francisco. We There is, uh, uh, what is it, Waymo's, you know, Google's uh, automated cars just roaming the streets. You know, there is uh, uh, scooters everywhere. Uh, there is uh, uh, like uh, automated, uh, like personal vehicles, you know, like uh, like wheels that people ride. And it's just normal, you know. This has just become like uh, normalized, and it it takes living for me, like the city and the country, um, to come back and realize that this is not normal. Uh, this is, uh, you know, absolutely something different. You know that you know you have these two things and people that love nature, but at the same time, you know, mesh technology and technology is so normal. Like in Guatemala and Nicaragua, yes, like young people are connecting to the internet. You know, they they the there is and is the connection is pretty expensive. You know, uh, for people to afford, uh, like on their cellular phones, but it's increasingly more and more accessible. If that's what we want to call it. But it, there's definitely not the fixation in, in uh, that we have here and created our identities on Instagram or Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, at least in my generation, there's an absolute fixation here on, on, on that. And we understand the world through Instagram and to portraying these lives. Um, and, and we get a sense of ourselves that way. And so that's my experience of San Francisco, that it is very, like technology is very much immersing ourselves. You go to, um, the Kaiser Permanente uh, building and you have robots uh, like yeah. patrolling the, the parking lot and it's normal, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, and you, at my job, I also, uh, I remember where Google Glasses were like becoming the buzz thing. The, the developer of Google Glasses came to my tiny restaurant of 49 people. Uh, Mike Zuckerberg came to the, the tiny restaurant and uh, the, the Mark Zuckerberg General Hospital is in San Francisco. Right. And so, you know, like there is a lot of presence. You hear stories of them buying properties here, like Mark Zuckerberg to at one point uh, bought a fleet of, uh, hire a fleet of cars to block like uh, con- uh, parking spaces. So his construction crew could use those spaces without having to apply for the city permit. And so you have a lot of these stories. So these billionaires, tech billionaires, are roaming around. Uh, Serena Williams and her billionaire uh, partner, tech you know, partner, goes to restaurants here, and you know, like the, you know, these elite people that have proximity to these, uh, you know, new I guess uh, uh, money, right? Like technology, they're the new uh, source of power. Uh, they're just everywhere here and, and and it's just normal i guess but it, at least for me it takes leaving the area and come back to see like oh this is changed this is different and do most people think it's like a techno utopia or a dystopia like are you 
if you're asking me, I yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think it gets questioned as much. I think there is a sense of progress, right? That's we are the civilized people, and you know, and I think there is an imperial impetus uh, even among the organizers that I work with that push uh, certain narratives, you know, about progress as it relates to uh, knowledge and acceptance of science, right, quote unquote. But uh, by and large, as I found out through COVID, more, a lot of people who are in this quote unquote scientific fields, they're not practicing science. You know, they're practicing scientism because uh, they're, they're not questioning certain things. Um, and um, by and large, I think uh, just by the proximity to all this tech that has insidiously and slowly like trickled into our lives and it's just normal, um, that's why it's not surprising to me that people are not questioning the vaccine passports here. This is one of the most compliant places mm. when it comes to vaccine passports. I think Kenny did a very good job, an excellent job in summarizing um, what has been the change recently. I think, of course, this is the center of progressive liberal ethos, no? The place of where you're supposed to have this Parisian wannabe city of the West Coast, that is the the most the bedrock of or the place of Mecca for liberal politics and what is what happens here is like the microcosm of liberal politics. But um, well, my British friends who are listening, if they are listening, they would say that the hippie movement started in the UK. But I don't know where it started, so I'll just say what I think. What I was told here is that it started here and in here. So the hippie movement is what I think is what this Bay Area presents, Berkeley and San Francisco and all of that, no? And so I'd like to share my screen, but I, this is just what I think has happened. So the old left versus the mother left, if everyone can watch here. Mm -hmm. This is what I think the old left was, right? It's a little blurry here, but I'll just read it out loud. This is a visual image for our audio listeners. Resist authority, um, no to the CIA, free speech, free love, right? Berkeley was, this is 1971, this, this VW van, right? This is what this was presents. And this is the new left. This is the modern left, right? This is do what you're told, mask up, CDC, obey the establishment, no to free speech, right? Berkeley is considered as the birthplace for the movement of free speech. And then uh, we have here, right? Then this is the hippie movement, question authority. And now we see the symbol of Obama here question anyone questioning authority otherwise get them subpoenaed right any whistleblower protected like who do we we francis hudson i think it is the, the so-called whistleblower of facebook whistleblower um she's protected right when under the trump administration protected again another whistleblower that was against trump but you have edward snowden talking about are uh, the privacy being uh, um, invaded, right? Or uh, the technology that's coming to take us all. It, it, it's him that is out there exiled. It's Julian Assange that's exiled. It's, right? It's Chelsea Manning who is discussing crime wars. This is what this the, the, the Democrats will do to real whistleblowers. And this is what then and now. So, but I think Kenny did an uh, excellent job summarizing. It is very tribal. It is very team. It's very disappointing. I mean, I do have some thoughts about it because first off, there was the Black Panther Party in the Bay Area, right? It mm -hmm. started there. And there was the free speech movement 
that, you know, that seemed real to me. Like, I don't think that was just a fake um, and as the Black Panther Party was. Um, but I have, I have always had this experience of San Francisco, even when I first came from the Midwest, that, um, that when people talk about Hollywood and they talk about a veneer, you know, and I went to Universal Studios and you see the, like, those, that Back to the Future, the movie I saw, and you get to see that, like, there's just a facade and it, behind it is nothing other than pieces of wood holding up these facades. That was my experience of San Francisco, actually, not just personally, actually. It was like, it felt very like a veneer in experiencing people here compared to what I thought was more genuine in the Midwest where I was from in Ohio. Um, but I will also say, I don't think I would have become a radical had I not been in San Francisco. It is where I came into contact with more radical ideas um, than I was going to, than I was going to see, but they only went so far, I would say. And what I would now see, because all the radical, all the radicals who taught me my politics for the most part, they all went, they're all into that picture that you're seeing Eduardo showed. Like, you know, you've got to obey the establishment, do what the CDC tells you, mask up and all that kind of stuff. So it is coming I am coming to believe that not only spiritually in many ways this place, San Francisco felt like a veneer, but politically it was it was just a it was just a, it was a facade with pieces of wood held up behind it to to show a radicalism. How it became that because I don't think the people who started the Black Panther Party were like that. I think they were legit. I think they were they were trying to do the real thing. They got cracked down on um, and repression did a lot. But the current situation here in California, as I'm experiencing it is spiritually and politically just uh, like a Hollywood veneer. That's what it feels like. Um, and it has words that, that say that it stands for something, but there's literally nothing behind it holding it up. And I just wanted to add that, uh, you know, I, I went to Mission High School and I got a full ride to go to UC Berkeley. You know, like I thought it was a very radical place. This is 2005. And, you know, I was, my expectations were all right. You know, I, I came from South America, you know, like Latin America. I know my history. Like we know the U.S. has intervened. You know, we grew up with that. It's just kind of known. Um, and so there's a suspicion, right? So I never came with like the pursuing the American dream, you know, like completely, you know, ingrained in me. Point being, went to Berkeley. And what I found was actually, now that I think back, it was the beginnings of this. You know, I went to Berkeley in 2005. This is a couple of years after the beginning of Facebook. I went into Berkeley into, um, you know, residence, uh, residence halls, right, where people were uh, direct messaging each other in the same room through the messenger. That, that was, you know, and, and you could only access uh, Facebook via a, a college email at the time. And so... And everyone was uh, obsessed about technology, you know, the, the place to be. And, you know, one of my, my first college, uh, you know, uh, roommate, he's in, he's, uh, you know, he studied a computer science and in, in, in math, in applied mathematics. So he's in that world, you know. And, and, and so, you know, uh, that was the dominant thing in, you know, anyone who studied anything else is not doing so well, you know. And, and so that was radical Berkeley, you know, and, and then, there were pockets of Chicanismo, you know, that were kind of, you know, that was my first like experience with identity politics that again, I didn't know I was going through that until afterwards because I was like, wait, this is very not inclusive. Uh, and it's not radical at all. It's more like fight infighting and pointing fingers and this and that. But yeah, again, 
Berkeley wasn't the radical place that I expected by any means. Um, but similar to Lipson, I did kind of uh, found just little pockets, but the, the feeling wasn't the pictures that before that Eduardo showed, not at all. And, and that was, I think, in part what disillusioned me from that experience in college. I forgot to mention earlier, I know I've, I've mentioned on a couple, I guess it's probably going to be backwards, Pagans in the Promised Land, Stephen Newcomb's book, like highly recommend. A lot of what he talks about is civilization, right? And I think, you know, San Francisco is like the civilized place. Like we're, you know, we're the good people. Um, and what, like this book is very foundational. His, um, he's an independent scholar who spent much of his life, he's like actually based in California, studying the, the doctrine, the papal bulls and the doctrine of domination and really as the basis of Indian law in this country. But like all of law is based off of Indian law because that the, those decisions that were made are the foundation of every kind of property law that exists thereafter, mm. because it was somebody else's before it was subsumed and the role of the church in that and understanding. Um, I wish I could remember off the top of my head, the name of the court case, but there was a, a case that went to the Supreme court in 1907 uh, in the area of San Diego where they were, um, you know, original people of that place, who were suing for access to land, not to own it, but simply to have permanent access to the land as they had always had. And they had defended their land against um, incursions under the Mexican government. And then they had defended it under like as these Catholic mission lands. And then ultimately the Supreme Court case sort of set them aside saying that they were not human. Um, that the only humans involved in the case were the church, the the um, the Mexican government, the U.S. government, but the original people themselves didn't fall under the category of human because of this Indian law, the doctrine of domination, that if you were not Christian, then you could just have your assets taken, lives, everything else. And that has been the underlayment of everything from the beginning. And that part of what Stephen talks about in his, his book is that the way to become human was to actually become converted and literally help to build the mission um, structures. Like a lot of it was this labor force of building the California missions and both putting your, like relinquishing your, your, your own faith and land practices and then putting your labor into becoming civilized. And so for me, I think that kind of when I see that image of the allegory of California underpins all of it is this real, really original story that even predates the U.S. because this was going on under the Mexican government as well, is this doctrine of domination of the erasure of the original inhabitants and, and that now to be human means to be civilized and now as we're moving into this age that's essentially shaped within the confines of molecular biology, being human means submitting instead of building the mission is that you're agreeing to build a biosurveillance state. I mean, which is that's the new church of scientism is that that you submit, you submit yourself, you submit your paperwork, you know, you submit your tasks, you submit and it's submission, it's under the mission. So, um, Anyway, I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but. That means a lot to me right now. <laughs> and to me, it absolutely speaks to 
just the history of capitalism and you know enclosures dispossessing you know people from natural rights you know just inherent rights because literally like the civil war that um where 200 over 200,000 people died in my country but a breath Guatemala was over land but it was obscured over you know because the indigenous people were defending their right to stay in their lands you know um because they were fighting you know uh, United Fruit Company and like multinational corporations backed by the CIA and so it was about land you know and indig indigenous people just people in, you know defending their right to live off the land and now they want to blockchain everything that's my big concern is the land rights it's being framed as like empowering people by giving them ownership but it will erase communal land practice mm. that advances so all right well let's see what's next i touched about the garden core at the erasure of the, the garden in favor of the machine. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this, but this is one of the other murals. Maybe you guys, I don't know if any of you have seen it in person at um, uh, the San Francisco Art Institute. So this is also during the same, I guess it said he painted this in one month. So, I mean, you've got to give it to the guy, like he was very hard worker <laughs> and efficient in his commissions. Like, I mean, mo most of this, I heard he was kind of a challenging person to work for. So often he like ran off a lot of his assistants, um, but he did a lot of this work himself. So, um, so you know, this is, this is the top image here. Um, uh, let's see. So here, it, it, this is a description of this piece at the San Francisco Art Institute. The work powerfully completes art and labor the sheer work of creative practice with the individuals who surround, support, and fund a work of art. Um, a provocative expression of Rivera's politics is an example of the elevated status the artist attributed to the industrial worker. So I guess including art as workers, workers' rights within arts. And I just, I included this because again, one of the things I've been increasingly concerned about and not that this is anything new given what we know about the CAA funding arts, but the use of arts um, to advance certain political agendas and often targeting um, uh, groups around identity politics. This is an image that's from the Bloomberg Philanthropies Annual Fund and it's talking about collaborating with cultural funders. And so literally um, all elements of art from the visual arts to performing arts, um, film and digital media are being subsumed within this larger program that I think it is somewhat of a continuation of how art is used to advance systems of power. Uh, and so this is the, the, the larger image uh, overall. It has, again, industry. I don't know all of the elements, but uh, construction. Um, I'm, I don't have a sense of San Francisco's, I'm assuming in the 30s. I mean, granted the depression probably put a hitch in it, but you know, building these large buildings, yeah. there's architects. Uh, it's not nearly on the scale of the Detroit um, uh, program. And again, he did it only in one month, but I know that there's something that's just come up. This is January of 2021 that, uh, the Institute itself is come under financial crisis, not unlike many institutions of higher education. And so they're looking at, they were looking at divesting and selling this off in some way. And so I, I know that that was an issue. It sounded like within the, the faculty of, of the organization to oppose the sale of the, the piece. But that's, again, art is a commodity and part of you know that larger struggle. I don't know if you guys, have, have any of you seen this in person, this piece? 
No, I've only seen it in the way that you're showing it here. Um, and I, I know one thing is that people say that that guy who's, whose butt is kind of hanging over the rafter there is supposed to be Diego oh, Rivera himself. I can, I can um, see that. <laughs> but people thought that was sort of like an insult or something like you, but you know, but I mean, it is cool to me how the wooden scaffold in there matches with the, like, again, I just think it's a pretty cool piece. Um, like how that wooden scaffold matches the architecture around it. The idea of moving it out of there again, gets to like, that's the whole point of why they, these muralists did this was that it, it's not really supposed to be moved. It's supposed to be something that's not property per se. It's supposed to be placed in a, in a place that anybody could access. Um, there was a quote that I saw of him in California that I would like to share that might get to, that I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. And um, it was, this is Diego Rivera actually. Uh, and I found this in, it was in relationship to these works that he did in California. He goes, while working in California, I met William, Valentiner and Edgar Rock Richardson of the Detroit Institutes of Art. This is before he's going to go to Detroit to do his industrial paintings. He goes, I mentioned a, a desire which I had to paint a series of murals about the industries of the United States, a series that would constitute a new kind of plastic poem depicting in color and form the story of each industry and its division of labor. Dr. Valentiner um, was keenly interested, considered my idea a potential base for a new school of modern art in America as related to the social structure of American life as the art of the middle ages had been related to middle to medieval society, which I actually think there's, those two are very connected in terms of like the art of the middle ages was about a particular set of ideas that are being pushed um, that were about, that really were in the, in, in the name of power. And, and, and I actually think that's Diego Garcia saying that, so he understands that that's what the, these things really are is, is, is it's beautiful, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, and so is Michelangelo and all that other stuff, but it's unfortunately looks like it's in the name of these, of these powerful institutions and structures that, that aren't beautiful. You know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking today, I, I spent a, about three and a half hours watching a conference from 2019 actually about wearable technology and the human computing frontier. And towards the end, they had a whole panel about augmented and extended reality. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking at these large scale installations and thinking, you know, how does this fit into, like today it seems like extended reality is the next version that these murals these large mural pieces, especially the, the, the two that we're going to talk about next, are so expansive that they take up your whole sensory experience, right? They, they, they fulfill your worldview. So you're not in a VR headset, but they do take, take the whole scope in and then they shape the frame that they're giving you, that this is how you see the world through this lens, at least when you're engaging with the art. It's not an intimate experience. It's one that is in totality. So I, I thought that that's kind of interesting to think of the way in which the programming through art and digital um, digital art is coming coming next. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll just, I have this slide here. This is an article and I would encourage if people have access to the slide deck to check the source. It's quite an extensive article in the California Freemason. <laughs> they have quite a nice publication with all sorts of things about 
Freemasonry in California, but this was a whole article about um, Rivera and, and that his father uh, was a 33rd degree um, Mason. And I thought it was kind of important. I don't think I knew this before, but I, I, I just came across it in the last couple of days when I was revisiting what his father had done um, because he moved from a rural area into the city. Uh, but it, And I think at that point, his prospects were, were less than they were in the town that he grew up in. Uh, but he was a public health inspector at some point. I think he was a reviewer of school systems in, in the rural community that he was in. And then in the city, it said that he was a public health inspector. Now, they also said he lived in an apartment that was in like a rat infested neighborhood or something. So I don't know how high a level the public health inspector was, but I think given, you know, his interest in these various um, science in the murals, as well as the ones that he did for the, like the, the health and hygiene Institute, the, the public health background of his father is, is interesting, but um, yeah. So masonry is part of this. Um, okay. So, so now we're on to Detroit. Uh, this was sort of the focus again. We, we went into some detail last time about the vaccination mural. Uh, this is an image that gives you a sense of the location. Again, it had been a plain, undecorated court with lots of tropical foliage. And this is truly immersive, right? So you've, it's a rectangular space. You have on the north and south wall really significant, like, large, large scale murals that you just become immersed in the scene of furnaces and belts and stamps and press and the workers. And then above that, you have these narrower bands uh, with details and then a second tier of frescoes at the top. And then on the, the east and west walls, they're smaller and they have these little alcoves in them. So that's, that's the sort of orientation. Um, I just included in the slide deck, this is a cutaway of the names. I don't know that he actually gave these names. The, the, the Detroit Art Institute has a very good website that you, it's interactive and you can get pretty high resolution detail on these because it's interesting. The ones at the top level, you're never going to be able, there's not an, a, um, a second floor gallery that you could get close to seeing those. So all of the upper images you're just seeing from the ground floor up. And so the really the only way to get the really high level of detail is to look at the images that they have on their website. Um, so some of the ones that I had sort of put arrows on of note was that we have the vaccination mural, which is in the top corner on the north wall, uh, underneath that embryo, which we had talked about last time about sort of Sophia and the minerals. Uh, the furnace is a central feature um, in the large mural on this wall. And I think there is something transformative about furnaces, alchemy, transformation, nanoparticles. He has some stuff going on with poison gas. And later on, this is connected to pharmaceuticals. So there is in this the standard analysis of these images that he's sort of saying, well, you could use it for good or you could use it for bad. And there's this sort of dialectic, like you could poison people to death or you can make a nice pill for them. And so that's that's sort of this, this diagram of laying, laying things out. Um, over here, you can see the shipping. We talked about that last time, the globalization and the rubber plantations and then the mask of life and death. Um, so Edsel Ford was essentially the money behind, behind this. Um, 
and so he, you know, while he was there, this, this, uh, the, the murals were done, I think over a nine month period, during which time he, uh, Rivera conducted extensive research. And they weren't just about the, the River Rouge plant, but other industries in the Detroit area. And so sort of Ford was the, the patron of having this project happen. And so this is just a portrait of, of him. Um, the, the context of this was, again, it was the height of the depression. And uh, there were a lot of people going hungry. <laughs> and so like this was shortly after Rivera arrived, I think a couple weeks, uh, there had been an encounter where there had been a large march of people um, marching to the Ford plant. Uh, their children were hungry. People were in really bad streets. Um, and essentially, I'm trying to remember, it's, it wasn't in Detroit proper. Um, it's like the, the nearby city, but essentially Ford controlled everything. And he, they had their own private police systems and there was tear gas uh, put into the crowd and four people were killed um, as part of this, this uh, engagement. It wasn't meant to be um, violent and it was, it was very much uh, force shown by those in power, force shown by the, the Ford company. And um, it was during the wintertime too, so pretty miserable in Detroit. And so I guess the question then becomes, uh, what is one's obligation as an artist? Um, how does one engage with power? Um, and I would say at this point, the choice made was, it was a pretty stark choice. <laughs> Being that like two weeks in and, and Andy is some, someone who's, knows about making maybe like hard choices. Um, this was a pretty compelling, if you weren't sure that the Ford was the, the, the dominant power in this over the workers, uh, I think that the fact that this happened shortly before he arrived to do his research and start the murals was pretty clear. Um, I think one of the things that was interested, interesting to me about the uh, Rouge plant was its expansiveness. And really it was the polar opposite of what we understand globalization today, like that you would have just-in-time parts and global supply chains and you would source things as cheaply as possible. Essentially at this time, Ford wanted control of everything. They wanted, they owned their own mines, they owned their own resources, they probably owned their own rubber plantations. They were in control of all of it as much as possible. They wanted it all in one area. This was almost like a city within a city. It had its own fire stations, police departments, hospitals, everything was there. And if we're, we're considering, again, the allegory of California, the, the machined garden, this is, this is clearly a massive industrial enterprise. If, you become, if you're a worker in this, you're clearly within a technological system. Let's see, it said, uh, Okay, um, I'm just going to read off here. It says his ultimate goal was to achieve total self-sufficiency by owning, operating, coordinating all the resources needed to produce complete automobiles. His Ford Motor Company once owned 700,000 acres of forest, iron mines, and limestone quarries in northern Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Ford Mines covered thousands of acres of coal-rich land in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. He even purchased and operated a rubber plantation in Brazil. And to bring all these materials to the Rouge, he operated a fleet of ore freighters and an entire regional railroad company. <laughs> 
His ambition was never completely realized, but no one has ever come so close on such a grand scale. At no time, for example, did Ford have fewer than 6,000 suppliers serving this, this factory. So this was a, I mean, if you want to talk about industrial power, this is, this is it. This is it. Um, this is just simply another image. You can see the amount of coal um, in the coal furnaces. Somebody um, commented on my, my share of our previous talk uh, that they had, were from the Detroit area. And one of the things that they remembered was the furnaces and even seeing the hulking ruins of the furnaces still today. Um, so, yeah, at least for me, um, you know, like the previous slide, uh, where we were talking about how Ford or the Ford company aimed to monopolize all aspects of life, basically, you know, for the workers, it, it, it reminds me of Amazon, you know, the Bezos, the, you know, like that is kind of like the evolution of these technocrats, right? Like the want to control life and, and, and how life goes about it's, 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 you know, uh, survival and just, you know, so it, it just makes me think of that. And, but again, it, 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 I remember a conversation I had with someone in at, uh, Dolores Park here, which is in the mission, you know, talk about colonization and just, uh, my friend went to Detroit and, and saw like the, you know, how half the Detroit is just empty and like, you know, this goes down. And, you know, it makes me think of San Francisco as we are starting to see companies just bounce, you know, just leave the area, you know, uh, because capitalism is not loyal to any location, right, or any boundary or any, you know, they'll go where it's most it's profitable to, 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 to go about its business. Um, and so, yeah, we were, you know, Tesla just announced they're moving to Texas, you know, Google, Apple, they're, they're, they're leaving the area. And so it just makes me wonder, you know, about um, the history of Detroit and, and, and us in the Bay Area. Yeah, and when I when I see this, um, at first I was like, I was thinking about smart cities and things like that. But when I think about what probably Ford had in mind of basically, I want to, I just want to control all the supply chain. I want to control all the work that comes in. I want to control the purchases that are made internally, there's stores inside of here. These, this is like, this is a city. It, it does make me actually, I mean, I guess smart cities are part of this, but it, it makes me think of what is being built globally now when it's considered when, when everyone has to figure out how do you get on digital ID with a digital, with digital um, money, uh, with everything kept on all your information on blockchain, the, the vision Ford had for the city, it appears now is the vision that the capitalist class now has for the globe. Uh, like they're, they're trying to put a system of the level of control that I think Ford had hoped would be able to be operatable here on a global scale now. Um, wh and whether they're successful or not, we'll find out. Um, I was thinking about from your previous slide when 1932, that's in Detroit, Michigan, 1936 is going to be the first sit down strikes where people say, where people essentially stop doing all the things that Diego Rivera is drawing about and they go like, we're not doing any of it. We're going to occupy those areas, but we're not letting them get used. Um, and, you know, it, that, is in, that is interesting because that I, I'm now again thinking, what, how do we fight this thing? Um, and the one thing they had to do was they had to stop the machine. They couldn't continue to feed the machine. They had to stop it. Um, the implication, I think, for many socialists, maybe even workers at the time, was we will get the owners out and we'll use this the way we want to. But I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I would just say that 
in order to fight this in 1936, the way they, they had to do that was literally just bring the machine to a halt. And I just wanted to add that to me also, this is not, uh, all right, this is like industrial capitalism, right? Uh, in, on a, with modern machinery, the latest technology at the time and now. Uh, but it also reminds me of the stories that I've learned about my motherland, where, you know, uh, indigenous, indigenous people or poor people in general were um, basically living in indentured servitude, you know, always indebted to the, the landlords, always indebted to the coffee plantation owners, always indebted to the, you know, sugarcane owners, because the, the those uh, oligarchs, they own the hospitals, they own the food chains. So if the people, you know, just stayed in that cycle of, of essentially slavery, right? It's, it's wage slavery, uh, but we don't associate that life to what, you know, Africans brought to this country um, when endured, you know, because we see that as the highest expression of violence in a human being and in human freedom, but essentially it's not, it's, it's not that far, you know, the degree of separation is not far. And, 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 you know, and I think of the U.S. to the lifestyle here. And, you know, I talk to my family all the time about life somewhere else and, you know, in another country because here you just, just spin the wheels. You come here and uh, there's another singer from my country that speaks about American people just like having everything by owing everything. You know, credit has facilitated you know, um, the lifestyles that we think are superior and more progressive, uh, but because we have sourced the, you know, the real cost of capitalism and extraction. And so, but again, it's just, the story is of indebtedness and being caught in a, in a, you know, as a, a ecosystem, because that's literally what Apple and Amazon are doing, creating ecosystems that you can't escape. You know, just a simple thing as as removing yourself from, you know, an iPad and a, an iPhone. My brother's been trying to move to Samsung, but he keeps thinking about it because he's like, everyone has an Apple. And, I, you know, and so it keeps you in that trap. Of course, um, Ford was adamantly opposed to labor unions, right? I mean, very, very strongly opposed to it. Uh, I was just looking up a little bit as I was thinking, because I don't know much about the labor movement in Detroit, but was reading a little bit here that... Um, that he really believed that union leaders have pervasive incentives, perverse incentives, excuse me, to foment perpetual socioeconomic crisis to maintain their power. And um, I don't think he's too far off when I see that today with leaders trying to be as uh, to maintain power. But I, I don't know the context of this history of time from before. Maybe the unions at that time weren't as they are today. And I do believe that I, I, I am pro-union and I do believe that the unions Union activity is very important, especially for work as a collective way of working together. Um, that's all I was going to say. That 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 um, for believe that it was uh, it was not a he was not pro union. I will just add, um, and I, I forgot to include a slide of it here, but some of my early edu like leftist education around. The black radical tradition was learning more about the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, and General Baker, and uh, Jerome Scott. And even though a lot of what Rivera represented was an integrated workforce, it, it wasn't really as nearly as egalitarian as it might be represented in those murals. And so some of the lessons that I think are really useful today is to understand that 
that these were, you know, working class folks who understood the importance of having a collective intellectual underpinning um, for their organizing work and to do self-education of each other. And so they had a huge commitment both to uh, preparing printed articles and I think they involved like high school kids to stand outside and they had print and that they would come on Saturdays and they would read and they would instruct each other in a very, um, you know, democratic fashion. It was, you know, not one person lecturing that they had a commitment to not simply just be organized um, on the shop floor, but to do what was required. And someone shared with me a link um, a couple days ago, because sometimes I'm frustrated. Like, I think someone was like, Allison is an agent of the new world order because she's just, all of her information is too depressing. So she's just really pushing transhumanism, even though she doesn't know it. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do with that because I mean, unless I just crawl in a hole and pretend I don't know these things, right? Like if you don't like to know the things I know, then just don't pay attention to me. But someone said, well, you know, they shared a clip with someone and it was actually very helpful. They said, if some of people's knowledge, like you have to struggle for knowledge. And that if someone just like, this was in the context of occulted knowledge or esoteric knowledge, but if someone just shows up and says, here it is, you know, I heard it on the internet and this person told me that that can be really disempowering because you haven't done like the work in to even know what to do with that. And so to me, that kind of made sense is that like, and I often say, do your own work. Like if, if my material is helpful to you, like incorporate it or don't, but you actually have to engage in the process. And I think that was something that really came across in, in the, the drum movement um, is that there was a commitment to learning, not just a meme, not just to like, but to actually going to original sources and doing collective work in person. And so I don't know what that looks like today. I mean, clearly we're, I mean, I love y'all. I would love to be in your area so we could actually all sit in a room and have these conversations. Um, but I think that that lesson is really important to, re to remember. Um, and the one, the one other thing I will add is that um, I, I was watching a, uh, a lecture by Jerome Scott, who was involved. There's a, there's a, a documentary film, I think it's called Finally Got the News, about the, 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 the Black workers in Detroit and organizing. Um, and in that, they actually talk about mining. And essentially, these people who say that they're in mining, but they're actually just office, you know, really elite office workers. But Jerome Scott said when they started automating these plants, they were very strategic in how they did it because most of the Black workers had the most dangerous jobs. And the worst jobs were to be in the paint section because those were the most toxic, like at least in the 60s and 70s. Like if you were working in the paint room, like it was not good for your health. And so those were the jobs that they automated first. And so it made it very difficult. Like who wants to argue to, for an unsafe job, right? But then no one really saw where it was ultimately going. And so then it went. So, I mean, I think that's another lesson is that all of these things, they, they start off with use cases that are very hard to, to contest. And then they, they move from there. Yep. So, and so that, oh, go ahead. Well, just to make sure, like, because the 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 drum the drop revolutionary 
uh, union movement, that would have been like 30 years later from this, just to yes. make sure people know, yeah. like, because they would, those folks were like contemporaries of Black Panther Party, essentially, exactly. like, and, and were radicalized out of that, but were based industrially, but believe just like people, the leaders of the Black Panther Party did that you needed to know some things to de- to understand the system you were dealing with. Because if you didn't know it, they can fool you. And and so that was the tradition. Um, I, I, and I don't, I, I haven't read how well they were, like, I, I can't critique how good a job they did of that cross-pollination that you're describing that is necessary. But it, it does remind me, and this is something that's going to be true, I do believe education is a social experience. Like, and this is something I'm seeing I hate to put the class, the classroom, unfortunately, is a place of indoctrination, but I do say, I do see learning as a social thing. And I can say from my own experience in exchanging ideas with you, Allison, or then Jake, or Lynn Davenport, or Jessica Treglia, having my ideas knock around inside that room has been challenging, but I don't believe in any any other, I believe that process is necessary um, because it is the only way we're going to we're going to actually come to a synthesis of the sort is by different people bringing different pieces. Um, and the fact that there are some people who've explored too far like yourself <laughs> and depressed the fuck out of us with your stuff. I understand how people get upset about that, but it is necessary for people to, to go. I mean, that is just necessary for us to know about so we can put it into the, into the pot as we deal with people because they do have plans like, and Ford had a plan in 1930s and these capitalists have a plan now. And if you don't understand the plan, you cannot deal with it because they're going to come up with ways of finding ways of seducing people into their stuff. So, and that's what we're kind of talking about Diego Rivera here, which is he was an opposition, but very much controlled and very much confined. Cause like we said, he's, he's not, he's drawing these pictures about people going to work, but this is at a time when people are like two years after 1932 are the first um, wave of, general strikes that going off in Minneapolis and Oakland and places like that. So somehow that's not finding his way into the artwork. Um, I get it. They weren't going to give him the money for it, but there's a problem there. It, honestly, to me, it, I, I, it feels the same way that I feel about, you know, the symbolic, the symbolic, you know, uh, hires of color, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric of inclusion, the rhetoric of progress, you know, it's just uh, like you said, it's in a facade of of things, and you know the things are are just good enough, you know, just good enough because the the toxic room, that dangerous job, is not there. So you know, people like us that are that do depress people, you know, with information, uh, or at least the concepts that we think we know, um, get ostracized, and it's too much for people to handle, especially when your education. It's not yours. You're used to being told. You're being used to receive instructions through re- literally in high school. That was like, I remember vividly, like they ingrained that shit in my head that, you know, you need to be able to read instructions, <laughs> you know, and, you know, in same way, like, you know, even Ikea, you know, you need to follow instructions. I never look at that shit. I, I like figure it out, you know, like in, but most people, I think we've, Getting, especially the most institutionally educated, something that I keep repeating, the most institutionally educated don't really have an independent mind. You know, it's actually a regurgitation of the same. There is some variation, you know, in, and you asked the question about San Francisco, Allison, and, you know, and I, and I, I witnessed that during the Trump, you know, era, you know, the complete arrogance, you know, of, the, of, of liberal politics, you know, that we are in the know. 
we are the epitome of progress in, 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 in knowledge. And, you know, those are the barbaric people that need to be converted and in, in, in brought into submission. You know, and that narrative has stayed on in, in this vax, anti-vax binary, you know, that, that is being constructed to advance a lot of the stuff that we discuss in this show. But again, I do think, like Lipson, that it's going to take individual, a lot of people, individuals, understanding what John Classic said on this show, um, learning concepts, not just like what they tell you, learning how to be critical, you know, to form your own opinions. And, and so you can seek your own knowledge, be your own intellectual, you know, rather than just listen to even fucking uh, Noam Chomsky, who like, you know, like people are not willing to question sometimes or uh, or Cornell West, you know, or, you know, who have actually gotten on with the dumb Trump, you know, fight Biden BS and there's no fight happening. And so we have to be willing to be empowered enough through our own self-education to challenge the idea of these giants supposed intellectuals they'll give you your thought leaders <laughs> you have to be your own thought leader <laughs> well cool well so i'm i'm just gonna move on like because I, I know we have a lot of slides but I, the thing that i thought was really interesting about this rouge plant that when I was looking into it that they said that the first vehicles assembled there were actually tractors which is interesting to me um, because eventually, um, you know, this is the, the rock. Now this is like Ford and Rockefeller, but they, they, they were working in sort of tandem in different ways. Um, Mexico ended up being the, the center of the green revolution, right? This, the scientific management of agriculture. And, and we're going to move on later to the fact that, you know, um, Rivera also worked for the Rockefellers, but, the industrialization model of nature through industrial agriculture that was enabled through these vehicular systems that were produced by Ford. So I think, and then the centrality of within the green revolution being birthed out of Mexico and then the engineering, the gen genetic engineering of corn, right? And then the, the larger implications, um, both from a commodity standpoint and a health standpoint of recreating corn as all sorts of other, you know, commodity biotech based products that are not even food or not even quite fuel. Um, but the sacred nature of corn in Mexico, you know, and, and, and the, the sacredness of that, and then the corruption of that through these global supply chain processes, again, all in the name of progress. So I, I thought that, that the fact that the Rouge plant was doing tractors, I wanted to bring that in. Oh, well, so maybe Andy, this is when you were talking, what you were talking about. I guess they were saying that um, this was in 37, there was union organizing and they were just trying to distribute literature and they were all beaten up. The battle of the overpass. I don't know, but it, it said it was a pivotal event for the United Auto Workers. So, you know, clearly Ford, as we were saying, is not, not a friend of labor. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah. And so in 1947, Henry Ford, died and then they they began to shift towards a more global approach so that even i mean so really the rouge plant did not last all that long in in its current form it moved on to globalization you know within two decades really mm. so the thing that i wanted to point out because this comes back to a lot of my work around impact investing was both at the ford foundation and the rockefeller foundation 
are very central to channeling money for um, political purposes and social engineering purposes. Um, especially they're both are central players in the social impact investing space. Now, this is a little bit afterwards, um, but the Ford Foundation was established in 1936. So Rivera's painting this in 32. Four years later, they establish um, the foundation. You know, you've got to figure that it's they're thinking about it in 32. You know, maybe they haven't manifested the legal documentation, but they understand how they're going to manage their money. Um, and so it was originally established by Edsel, Edsel Ford, who was, you know, the main force patronizing the mural project. And um, let's see, you know, all for the public welfare. And then when Edsel and Henry Ford died in the 40s, um, let's see, uh, Edsel's son led the foundation. And then eventually they commissioned um, a study by H. Rowan Gaither. So this is 47. So again, we're not pinning this on Rivera, but we're just talking trajectory. Right. Um, and also linking it to San Francisco, that Horace Rowan Gaither, who was essentially instrumental in shaping the trajectory of the Ford Foundation, he was actually a San Francisco attorney and that was his training. And then somehow became an assistant director of the radiation lab at MIT. Now, I don't really know how that happens that you happen to be a Bay Area attorney and then you turn around and you're running a radiation lab at MIT, but there you go. Um, and then in the late fifties, he was very central. This relates to work that I did around the MITRE corporation because he was the first chair of MITRE. Um, but he did a report, he would chair a committee that issued a report to Eisenhower that essentially said after Sputnik, like we've got to really ramp up the air defense. You know, we're under you know, this, the cold war you know, is getting underway. We've got to weaponize the atmosphere, which is really central to what's coming now with the frequency weapons. And, you know, not coincidentally, then he joined with William Draper of the Marshall Plan and created the first venture capital fund on the West Coast in the Bay Area. Hmm. So again, indirectly, the Ford Foundation, there's this small group of players who are networked, they know one another. And so we see this trajectory from a quote unquote charitable philanthropy into the politics of the Cold War era straight into sort of uh, Silicon Valley uh, militarized venture capital. Okay. Yeah, and just to say, this is another quote I found when I was again doing research on Orozco and Diego Rivera, because we started this with talking about the, the mural movement that that started in, in Mexico after the revolution. And this was a quote I found that they, these folks, these people, these leaders were aware of the importance of, of uh, what is it called when you put money into, like you give money, well, fellowships or these scholarship sort of things. Um, and this is a quote I found from President Obregón. This is in Mexico. President Obregón's brilliant minister of education Jove von Scalos, a lawyer and philosopher who had participated in the revolt against dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, he said this, men are more malleable when approached through their senses as happens when one, when one contemplates beautiful forms and figures. Um, and this was a big reason for why he felt like this art, these mural programs had to be commissioned. And I do think like that, that was even understood in, in 1910 that that view of culture and society and and these these um, f scholarships or these fellowships that support these things 
are very much aware of how they are going to use that money to control the message of culture and cultural ideas. Um, and so I just feel like, uh, you know, that that was understood then. And I think it's been very much more understood now when you think about these, um, uh, you know, foundations, I guess that's what it's called. And I just wanted to add that at least in my studies, I've, I've I realized how much San Francisco has had, or this area in, in Imperial Ventures really, you know, you know, Standard Oil, uh, uh, was one of the first company, the first company to make a deal with the Saudi, uh, you know, uh, kings, uh, the king, uh, you know, and that obviously initiated a whole, you know, relationship with that area, and also the United United Nations. You know, a lot of people look at it as, a, you know, uh, an institution for the well-being of the world, but I see it as an institution of, of imperialism, and you know, and capitalist domination. And that charter was signed here. We literally have. The civic center here uh, is the UN Plaza, and that is an area where is is the most neglected uh, area that I've ever witnessed. And I've lived in Guatemala, Nicaragua. You know, wow. this area you go there, and and is 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 I don't mean to you know insult the people, but it's basically the the trash of capitalism where they outcast you know people, and you know the, the and by also the nonprofit industrial complex is ingrained in that area you know in you know my partner works in that in that area by the way in the tenderloin which also just as a side note happens to be an area that if this covid narrative was exactly how they said you would find like people dying on the street out there but we'd never had the masses of death that that you know that this virus was supposed to bring uh, because you have a lot of neglected people living in the street masses of people um, people are, can, it's, it's a shock if people go to the Tenderloin in San Francisco. All right. Um, I'm just, just a touching base again. This is this building off of Gaither at MIT and the, the creation of the air defense, because we will see a, in a lot of these images with Rivera airplanes, there are airplanes in all of the pictures so far. And so I think, um, you know, I don't have a really good analysis of why there's so much interest in, airplanes, but I do think, um, you know, I had, a, I had a friend early on who, who said, you know, those who control the air, like control the military defense and, and now the air, it, you know, airplanes are replaced with satellites, but yeah, air and aerospace are really central to this. Um, this is from one, one of the walls of the, I think the east wall of, of the, of the space. So, uh, yeah, airplanes. And this is just a slide about talking about the Draper, Gaither and Anderson uh, venture capital, because I think a lot of people just don't really stop to know the history of like, oh, well, how did Silicon Valley become that? But it had ties. So um, now I just want to move on a little bit to the pharmaceutical side of things, because this, again, gets back to the vaccination picture. And it wasn't just the Ford Motor Company. It was also evidently one of the major industries of Detroit was also pharmaceuticals and Park Davis uh, was, was like one of the world's largest manufacturing um, of pharmaceuticals. And uh, so again, this, this is a, a quote. It just talks about how Rivera, he arrived after the, the hunger March uh, massacre. And, you know, as part of the tour that he did, uh, he toured these uh, pharmaceutical industries uh, 
let's see, in the 30s, it was saying that they had just discovered penicillin and they were working on, you know, the, the, the electron microscope was becoming more commonly used and accessible and they were working on vaccines um, and, and against polio and other diseases. And so this is actually an image of, um, from, it's one of the, the top tier murals. It's, it's on the opposite side from the vaccination mural, but this is the pharmaceutics image that he has. It's the same scale as the vaccination mural. And so it's, I would be interested in what you guys think of it. One of, I mean, there, there's a central male figure in a white lab coat who's looking at a book. Um, he, it, it, there's machinery underneath his desk. There are these trays, which I think are like dead animals, <laughs> these metal trays covered in sheets. Um, there are, are ranks of young women <laughs> and uh, matching uniforms with their legs really showing a little bit hitched up, kind of racy probably for the 30s. Um, at the end, the guy is really fixated on his book and his calculating machine, which is sitting on essentially a radio, which is very strange with the, the vents in the radio are not unlike stained glass windows, like a church. So it's like a, um, and then in the background, there are, there's a gentleman reaching into this refrigerator case with trays and there's some larger machinery and a, I don't know, there's a woman, a couple of women further back, but it's, and, and I think part of what Park Davis did was they developed some sort of pill the machines to create standardized pill manufacturing. So there's like a canister of pills in front of this guy. Um, and I will say based on the adding machines sitting on the radio, and this goes back to some of the stuff I was talking about uh, in the first episode, I think a lot of this is related to electronics, to frequency and the manipulation of sort of nanoparticles and nanoelectronics in what is coming. Um, and I think frequency has probably been something that those in the know have known how to manipulate. I mean, this came, this is later in World War II, but radar systems uh, became very prominently, you know, very deeply understood. So I think for me, the frequency and, and the fact that he has this microphone, um, Rivera does a lot with electricity and things that I think are related to sound waves. So do you guys have any thoughts about like, how's this image strike you? You know, this is another one of those murals that have him where he um, is uh, an, an admirer of sci the sciences, no? And the tech industry are, this was the, the, um, not very high tech, but it's still in the very beginning stages of technology. I mean, if we look at just the typewriter or this calculator, in this case, it was one of those inventions that was revolutionary in its time. In its time, um, and I do think that the women at that time were beginning to be hired, no, as more workers, as as workers for clerical or sort of uh, chair uh, seated um, work. Um, I'm not sure what the woman at the top is doing, if she is doing something that otherwise would be considered a man's job at this time. Uh, but then the war started in what, in the forties. So I forget when were women more used um, before or after the or during the war period. So I don't have that um, US American history context. 
I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, I mean, it is, it is, it's draws your eye in. It's again, Diego Rivera makes me go, wow, that's, there's something, there is something beautiful about it. But if I put that aside for a second, um, it's like the only people who you can tell what they're doing are in the other pictures. You can, you have different people doing different things. You can tell that they play a role in a process. And here, it, I, I, the only people who I can maybe get a sense of what they're doing seem to be the men and the women are all dressed the same. And there's almost like, um, I mean, you really do get a sense of their second role compared to the men in this place. Um, that's one thing that just comes across, particularly when they're all dressed the same and they're facing the same and facing down, uh, maybe like their heads in prayer or something like that. Um, and the only thing I can say that's about that radio is I am struck by the stained glass church nature of that device, that communication device. Um, I don't know what's going on there, but that, that really is interesting to me that he decided to turn that into like a little church, like the, the, this modern communication is the new church. And maybe one could say that Gutenberg and the printing press, that was important for religious ideas to be and the radio and the, these invisible frequencies out of which people are going to be getting information and being where you can essentially control more people um, and give people the information you want. Um, maybe he's connect. I mean, I don't know. It's a, but there's a, there is an element of mass communication um, once again, um, being a new version of mass communication. So those are some things that I see in it. I find it curious again that um, he has this machine that he's, you know, the person in the picture on the right, uh, with his right hand touching the machine that Lipson just described. And then there's a phone and like all this technology is compacted and just makes me think of the phone now, you know, and like how technologies uh, like in, in the fourth industrial revolution, right? Like technologies are becoming more integrated with each other, uh, including, you know, like, um, what we are saying, you know, the biology and technology and it's going to have this weird like meshing. And, but it also, since you mentioned the world war, uh, Alison, it makes me um, think about that because I, I, when you look back, obviously at the first and second world war, there were massive displays of the latest technology used mm -hmm. for violence, you know, and, um, and so it's something that we brought up here in terms of, you know, the future war that you know the, in in the applications of technology they're not the the birthplace of a lot of tech, tech that we are using now it wasn't to benefit the public or individuals it was a military use um and um so again like you know this is a snapshot of the time and i think there's a little foreshadowing you know or, or where things are going it makes me wonder if maybe these concepts have always been there there's just manifested in different ways in different, uh, you know, uh, like stages of quote unquote progress or, um, you know, industrial revolution at the time, because this is the, this is like the second industrial revolution, right? Because the third came, was the di digitalization of stuff, right? And, and so, um, yeah, those are the thoughts that come to mind, um, because I do think overall, the sense that I get from the, the stuff that we've seen is that there is, almost an optim there's an optimism to Diego Rivera's um, uh, observations, at least from what I sense. 
and optimism for technology and um you know just uh i don't know like it doesn't it doesn't scare me when i see this so much uh you know just for what it is uh i could see why people would be inspired and by it but uh, that's why I find when we discuss Orozco, like a complete different take on technology. And that's a little more, wait a minute. Yeah, for me, this, this picture is, is a little scary though, honestly, like this is not, this doesn't techno, this, this looks kind of dystopian, like a, like one of the Terry Gilliam movie in Brazil or something like that. It, it, he's it, like, he's intentionally making the, the figures, the male figures, like kind of like ugly and, but I'm not sure what he's getting at. This this doesn't have that optimism that I do see in some of the other stuff. This one looks kind of like scary and more like the world that we're that I feel like we're really being pushed into of conformity and um, you know do as you're told. I think it's interesting that the the woman in the foreground on on the the right side, the the brunette, she has a you can see her wristwatch. Because to me, that's an indication of like time and that there's some part of her life that isn't sitting at that table counting pills. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and this is one of the things I, I think I'm working on unlearning or revisiting is the idea of, you know, the whole feminist ideal or the, the woman at work or, you know, what is, is it empowering to go to work and have a wage in a factory versus manage a home in a community, you know, sort of inverting what it is like this, this women's work. And, and then layered onto that, and, and we'll go into a little bit more detail about the Park Davis company. I don't know that this is specifically a representation, although he did tour that, that company in developing his research. Um, but just, you know, you know, I keep thinking about the, the, oxycodone, you know, all the, the, the Sacklers and the pill mills and the dystopia of like deadening yourself to like get up by in the world, the Soma kind of approach, um, of medication that it's not necessarily all just about, um, you know, healing from an illness sort of thing. So, um, yeah, interesting to think about. So let me see. Okay. So this is, this is just a, oh, go ahead. No, I just wonder what the little writing on the back, you know, like the, there's like a fridge that's open by the, on the left side. Oh yeah. I wonder what that says. I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I know. And like the bodies in the trays under the sheets are just really disturbing too. So some of this is a little grotesque, but this, this is just an image again of the South wall. I included that in the slide deck if people want to go through and sort of see what, what the layout is, but you can see on, on the one side is the pharmacy. And then on the opposite side of the South wall is the chemical industry um, is, is the, the structure there. So, um, so the chemical industry is here on the right. This is next to the airplane, uh, the, the, the global, the global supply chain, uh, thing is is this is supposed to be the bad use of chemicals is that you put them in bombs and kill people um although that the the outfits that the people are wearing have some echo of the same types of attire that the people who are in the more toxic parts of the plant are wearing 
Um, and then on the right is the, the good kind of chemical industry. And I will say it's interesting because there's a, a gentleman and a lot of these people look really creepy, like out of a horror movie with the little glass, you know, glasses on and things. But he has these calipers, which, again, are, feel a little bit Masonic. Um, and so I, I don't really understand how the image on the right is the chemical industry. Per se, I mean, you can see that people have this draping on their face. But it's a very stylized composition, which is un different than his others with these arms that are sort of united. And one of the things I, I have a, a, a white arrow pointing out in the background is this ladder-esque. It's either, it's hard to know the perspective if it's a ladder or if it's a railroad track. But it's very small. And then there are two figures proceeding along this track, which have enough detail in the silhouette that it seems very significant. But I would, I don't know if any of you guys have thoughts about what those figures are doing. But it's quite a dynamic thing with, with the chemicals. So I wanted to mention this. And then this is another chemical. I think I may have showed this earlier. Sulfur or something around the sort of toxic fumes and these cells. And so again, this is just touching back on the idea of black rock. There's a lot of stuff around black rocks and black things in AI, uh, black goo, gray goo, um, that I just, to me that this is a, this, this is definitely not a heroic um, set of images around the chemical use of chemicals. Um, and I will say in the public health sphere, because I mentioned, I touched base on it a little bit last, Last time when I was looking at the book, How to Hide an Empire, Daniel Imrawar's book, which is excellent. Um, he has a whole section about Cornelius Rhodes and his work in Puerto Rico on, um, I think it was for the Rockefellers on hookworm or something, but he talked about um, that he really didn't like the people of Puerto Rico and he was trying to poison a bunch of them. And then eventually that got back. But this guy Cornelius Rhodes became the head of chemical warfare in World War II and like dropped a lot of chemical bombs on Puerto Rican soldiers in Central America to try it out and then eventually leverage that expertise to make chemotherapy. And there was a big cancer award in his name for a long time until it came out <laughs> in late, like in the 80s, 80s or 90s. And someone said, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're name, you named this award after this guy who essentially triggered the Puerto Rican nationalist movement because he wrote a letter about killing Puerto Ricans with his medical research under the guise of Rockefeller medicine. So again, that's later, that's sort of the 19, well, not that much later, because um, I think he was in Puerto Rico in the 20s, um, but through the World War II era. So clearly chemicals, a lot of complex history around chemicals. I wonder if this is a, what if this is more of um, in another admiration or is this trying to expose the, the industry because it feels because you know well, chemicals and even just um the corruption that exists in the epa with chemical safety it has just this year has some of the um uh uh has been in the news about how people and companies have long known that uh, chemicals have a harmful effects on the environment and onto us as people and um but still companies and industries still do this and in the name of like trying to create better technologies or trying to do better things for us as a society. Um, I don't know how is this something that could be 
glorified or looked at with admiration because it's obviously maybe at that time it wasn't talked about in the environmental context or terms, but it's obviously damaging to us, no? So I'm, I'm curious if what was, in what light was Diego Rivera trying to portray this as? Yeah, I mean, if it's the chemical industry, I mean, uh, first, Allison, do you know for a fact that that right picture is 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 considered a different picture than connected to that left picture? Because if I was looking at this, I would have said that there's a there's a process that there's that I'm seeing a process of production that starts with that right picture where they're refining something or getting something out, and then it's going to be used and utilized in the left picture. But do you know if that's the case? Um, the image on the right is mirrored with the pharmacy on that same wall. And then the chemical munitions is like kitty cross on the other side oh, of the room. Okay. Gotcha. So, so they're not next to each other like that. Yeah. Okay. No. So that, on this so is more paired, if anything, with the pharmaceutical. Right. Um, then the, the only thing then that comes to mind for me, and there, there's no way that you would, <laughs> I mean, World War One. Yeah. One of the stories of World War One was the, the chemical yeah. gas attacks and things like that. So I, I, I have a tough time believing that that left picture with the weird bug-eyed masks and stuff like that is anything other than, okay, this is where we sometimes go, the, the negative aspect. But that other picture, the, the positive one, it is weird to me. I thought it was an unfinished picture because for some reason he draws the figures. They don't look as human. They're kind of semi-transparent. Um, you can actually see the things behind them. I don't know what's going on with it. It's not, it's not particularly encouraging when I look at it, um, and it doesn't it doesn't evoke the same sense that I've seen in other pictures of like movement forward and possibility, and we can build this world together. I almost thought it. I just don't. I'm not sure what's going on there. It, it doesn't seem positive, and I don't know why he made what what the artistic meaning behind people actually beginning to disappear a little bit. And so you can see behind their bodies because that's not happening in the other picture. Right. I mean, it almost looks like there's some cubist elements in mm. it, like these mm. different lines and things. And maybe yeah. if it was higher up on the wall, because this one is the top tier. Yeah. Um, but even the composition with the, the shape, I mean, I don't know. It looks sort of bad, like a clitor. I mean, it looked like it is this opening, like a portal. <laughs> but like, I don't know what the stick. Like, it's complicated. And then, who are those little people in the back? Like, there's. It feels like there's something going on. I can't say that any of it is celebratory. <laughs> I'm just kind of putting out these images so we can. Yeah, we can something clandestine happening. Something that's not under. Well, I mean, this guy with the calipers. I mean, I don't know, like. Um, okay, so anyway, you're gonna have more something? like context, like just about the electron microscopy. Um, it said so 1931, so this is like the year before, uh, in, in Europe, uh, University of Berlin. So they, they, you know, that's let's see, and I guess by 1933, it says Ernst Ruska developed the original model further to develop an electron microscope that was capable of producing an image of higher resolution than what was possible with optical. So, so this is the background of like the molecular approach to life is happening against the backdrop of these technological developments where we're actually able to see um, things that were unseen before, even with previous technology. 
Um, so again, this is just an image saying that uh, a quote that Diego Rivera was given tours of these various factories that he went to the Park Davis pharmaceutical plant. Um, and that was uh, the resulting mural was the vaccination mural, which had the sort of nativity framing. Um, and that the Park Davis research plant is now, I guess, an Omni hotel in Detroit. Um, but it was it was very prominent. And to me, this is also an element of the whole, um, you know, capitalist uh, extractivist element is that the company dated to the late 19th century and that they were doing a lot of expeditions to acquire plants and plant medicine as part of their pharmaceutical business. But that was happening in Central and South America. So they were they were gathering the medicines there and then further refining them. And then also, I guess, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, and now I guess the company has been transformed. It is now a subsidiary of Pfizer. So it's, it's but it, it said at one point it was America's oldest and largest drug maker. So I'd never heard of Park Davis before, but that feels important. Um, the, this is just a poster of their various vaccinations, I guess from smallpox to acne. I didn't know that they had acne vaccinations, but this is actually from here in Philadelphia, the, um, the medical library at the College of Physicians. Um, so there's some advertising. Um, again, this is, this is just some more background information, but it started in the 1860s. So it was quite, um, you know, it was, it was very early. Uh, ointments, as we know, Rockefeller, like his father was also in the medical business, but they frame more as snake oil salesmen. So these early eras of pharmaceuticals, um, they were working on ointments, um, but yeah, I didn't. I did not realize that the pharmaceutical was Detroit's largest industry at any point. This is by the late 19th century. That was it. Um, it said Park Davis uh, would they would sell cocaine <laughs> mm -hmm. with a needle, and then I would say like you know if we we're giving everyone cocaine that that um, let's see the co the company promised that its cocaine products would quote supply the place of food make the coward brave silent eloquent and render sufferer insensitive to pain <laughs> which there you go right um and then what one of the other things i found quite interesting that that alistair crowley um uh, consulted with them uh on peyote you know in the 19 teens so this is actually not insignificant uh, because later, uh, Park Davis was involved in a lot of psychedelic consciousness changing compounds, uh, including uh, ketamine, and then also was involved with the CIA. So this is an, an, uh, an article from the University of Delaware in the 70s, which is 1979, talking about uh, MK Ultra and uh, the role of the, the drug companies in consultation with the CIA on mind control programs. And this, this last paragraph here, uh, it says, I carried out research at Park Davis and company Detroit, Michigan, and at the University of Delaware with the support of the Geschichter Fund for Medical Research during the period 1953 to 1962. So over a decade, I was aware that Geschichter Fund was supporting the work at the request of the US Central Intelligence Agency. So you know, if we're going back to thinking about the whole pharmaceutical industry, um, to me, I, I, I'm increasingly feeling like this whole thing that's rolling out, even including blockchain, is an engagement around control of consciousness. 
but that going back to colonization and commodities and plant medicine and Central and South America and what Park Davis was doing down there and then how it was later incorporated into this industrial paradigm feels kind of important. Um, again, this, this, this is actually an article from Comprehensive Psychiatry, December 1960, which is talking about uh, controlled sensory input, uh, drug evaluations, reporting, uh, comparing Cernil, psilocybin, and LSD. And parked the the study was supported with funds available by NIMH, and the drugs were provided in part by Park Davis. So, yeah. So, do you guys have like thoughts on <laughs> any of that stuff? I mean, I guess you've got you've got the Bay Area connection with the the various well, uh, psychedelics. <laughs> I mean, there's so much. I guess I'll just say a few things. I'm sure Kenny and Roto, you guys can also, but like. Um, the, the, I'm, again, Operation Warp Speed only brought together so many different things, uh, Department of, was it the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Google, uh, Palantir, obviously Pfizer and, you know, like, and of, and of course CIA and NSA, like these things just remind you of how interwoven all these institutions are and how you can't just say, oh, this, this one's doing something over here as it's somehow independent. Like the fact that CIA had such an intimate not relationship at that time with the the pharmacies, the pharmaceuticals of the day for their reason. Do we think that's anything different today? In fact, we must imagine that that inner that interpenetration is even more so now. And in fact, it's it's made overt by Operation Warp Speed, where they say, "Well, we're all getting together in one room um, and doing such a thing." Um, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that. When I, I looked into some of these sorts of things about the CIA and how they didn't just look into the drugs, they were actually studying um, shamans, like mm -hmm. spiritual shamans, to see if they could figure out how to uh, do astral projection. They they like they don't leave any stone uncovered. Things that all of us, oh, that's that's just indigenous, you know, that's that's like superstitious. They're like, no, let's go see if we can turn something like that into something so we can use that to spy. Like if there's something. These people do not play like, and they, everything is, they'll, they don't think any of this stuff is a joke. They, they are look, they're looking into it and they're doing, they did studies to see if they could follow the practice of these shamans to do astral projection so they could see if they could spy on people remotely, you know? So it's like, they're very serious about the world and about the resources in the world. They take this very seriously what people are capable of doing and trying to figure out we will, we will use anyone in any way or any culture in any way, if we can find it to, to, to in our means, you know? Um, and that, that was really struck me when I saw that they actually had done years of study on shaman practices to try to figure out how to, if they could replicate or if there was something to this astral projection and they've actually done work that suggests there is something to it. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I mean, that they, that they, that they, there's a road they can go down there. Um, and the other thing that just comes to mind to me, and this goes back to this, is MITRE. Is MITRE is a company today that's involved directly. I mean, there's an article that just actually I saw yesterday. Um, what was it? Uh, it's, it's called where MITRE is involved in the vaccine credential initiative being used to create a whole digital passport and how MITRE has created technologies where they can um, use the screens from people's social social, um, what's it called? Social uh, media 
profiles. So yeah, but like from social media that you use, and they can they can they can get your fingerprint off of it somehow. Um, they're remotely fingerprinting people with your social media, and this is MITRE involved in vaccine initiatives, involved in digital IDs. It it's twisted, and it's just so. All this does for me, Allison, is it just says that this world that we're uncovering has been a world, has been an interpenetrated world for quite some time. It's just it's taken time for its for us to it be revealed to us. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, like they say all the time, that the things they're doing now are not the things that we're seeing now are not the things that they're capable of. Um, and it's scary, but I don't know. It's, it's just um, these people don't play. To me, I think I might dive a little bit into identity politics, but you know how um, you know we are educating, right? Like quote unquote, like the black and brown communities on vaccine, you know, because they're hesitant and this and that. And you know, again, I mentioned earlier that I've grown up with stories of U.S. imperialism in my country at birth, and you know, we uh, they injected people with herpes you know, down there in Guatemala, you know, that's a, the classified thing now that it's like the U.S. has apologized for whatever, you know, they've also spread uh, <clears throat> on the war on drugs uh, roundup, you know, on, on people in Colombia and Guatemala, you know, and they, um, they, they, they don't have regard for life. They come and indiscriminately, you know, spread this stuff. And, you know, that was one of the things that has informed my questioning of official science you know, because uh, Roundup was protected by supposed scientific papers for, you know, for 30 plus years, you know, and, and, and it's still, there's still doubt as if it, you know, uh, protects, uh, you know, um, as if it's not, there's, there's some doubt as to how dangerous it is, right? And it was supposed to be the eco-friendly option to Agent Orange that was used in Vietnam, you know, so there's people of the world that have experience you know, a lot of shit that get dismissed as crazy, you know, and that's in that we know the propaganda. You know, that's that's one thing that I keep telling people that the U.S. is one of the most propagandized countries in the world. And you, you have to live to, to be able to realize for some people, you know, and how crazy it is, how mad it is. The, the, the ruling class of these countries, the most vicious ruling class there is, the most genocidal ruling class, you know, willing to do this kind of stuff, you know, in, 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 in like you know, uh, experimenting with psychedelics, you know, uh, drugging people, injecting people with shit. And so, yes, a lot of people from the that have that history have reasons to be suspicious of the state, you know, and, and you know, it's grounded in reality. And we know that it usually takes 30, 40, 50 years to find out that some real bad shit went down. And, and so, you know, I, so much for listening to, you know, that's a, a, like a, a, a gospel of the left, you know, listen to people of color, but not when it comes to COVID, not when it comes to the vaccine, not when it comes to, you know, suspicions on, on you know, and goes back to that picture that Eduardo shared. Now it's, you know, if you question authority, you're ignorant, you're backwards, you're not for progress. What, what I, yeah, I, I know what I found interesting is that they are involved in the selling of cocaine. No, and involved in the selling of these drugs, and I think of the the war on drugs, and how this has been perpetrated by uh, people who are trying to uh, quote un 
quote, save us or rescue us from being addicted or, you know, it's the global South's issues that we have to take care of because they are, and that's the cause of interventions. Those are the reasons why we must intervene. And yet you have companies in your very own home, in your homeland, where you have this, the drugs being sold, this, the narco traffickers are really happening here in the USA or in the first world countries as it is uh, um, known or considered. And, uh, and it's the war on drugs, like the war on terror, is not, uh, it's just the guys to, to intervene, to, to, to be able to do things, to have unlimited power, to be able to try to infiltrate and to, to, to target um, people. And, and back then it was to blame um, people of color and to try to uh, mass incarcerate people and control people's substance abuse, because otherwise these substances, um, you, you know, like now they're being used amongst a lot of people and we're having the discussions around decriminalization of uh, substances, but these substances has always been used in many, many parts of the uh, indigenous cultures, as we were seeing how even in ceremonies, they were talking about peyote here and people were interested in researching them. And, uh, but, you know, if it's not for profit, then you must do something about it. You must try to come other ice. You must try to figure out a way so you can commercialize it like we are doing now where immunity is not considered something that can be profitable, right? If we are, we don't vaccinate. This is a quote from Dr. Monica Gandhi, um, who said, we don't vaccinate people before 1963 for measles because, well, they've already had natural immunity. And anyone who is just like, renewable energies, or if you're trying to use the sun as a way um, as a way of an energy source, well, how do you find a way to make profit out of that, right? I believe that this was the same thing with drugs that, or the label of drugs, right? These substances that were used to before for who knows how long have our past and all over the continents, right? Our ancestors been using different substances, even herbs to be used for um, different uses of you know, I, I don't know the study of ethnobotany very well to be able to list out different drugs that were used specifically for different purposes, but uh, they were used here. And yet we are discussing always about how they are bad and no, and the um, don't do drugs campaign, right? Um, in the USA. So this came to mind as, I'm, as I was considering what, how Park and Davis's uh, role is in all of this. And just one last thought, it's something that Libson has brought up again a lot you know, is that synthesis of the state and private corporations, you know, uh, and uh, especially around the time when, you know, gearing up for war and, and competition with other states. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, any history of colonization, imperialism has that in common, you know. No, I just, I wanted to mention, Eduardo, when, um, about the, the plants, because I always like to put in blockchain when I can, is that they're framing this new like acknowledgement of indigenous cultural practice and, and access to these plants to say that these communities were not compensated appropriately uh, by Global North companies that were coming in and collecting medicines or doing these things. So now they can put them on blockchain to give like payments, right? Like that you get get reimbursed for the access to the, the plants in a way that was not 
available before. And that's being framed as um, the remedy, the remedy, right? But then it all becomes all of these relationships uh, become transactional and part of these global technological networks. So mm. it just goes back to the veneer of humanitarianism, you know, in order, just like we talked in the an episode about how the the development of passports, right? It was it was stressed as um, protecting um, Asian sex workers, Chinese sex workers, but you know it was a method of getting people into the system and tracking and attacking. It was an attack on on workers, really Chinese workers in particular, uh, rather than like the protecting you know sex workers. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I've talked a lot about children that I think within this metaverse that has been rolling out, this idea of the new manifest destiny digital empire that's coming is that they're looking to, through synthetic biology and brain modification, cognitive neuroscience to shift the, the minds of the, the coming generation into this space. So I think this section about um, this germ, he talks about it as the germ, um, is, is, um, central to this. So this is, this is an image of him in front of this narrow band that's going to be talking about the germ. So, um, this is the, one of the end walls and there's not a lot of painting because it's, it's a stairwell and these arcades, but you can see there are the, the two women, it's sort of the, the cornucopia bounty. Um, and in this narrow band is literally a, um, a uterus with a a baby in it (laughs) and on either side, and it's not necessarily super clear, but the, the, where the arrow is pointing, flanking either side of this uterus that is underground is part of like a mycelial network are uh, plowshares. (laughs) So it's this agricultural production, but, but the, the baby isn't connected to a human body. It's literally below the ground. Um, and then on either side of that are uh, produce of, um, I guess, Michigan, <laughs> Michigan produce. And this, the story goes that when he was making this composition that instead of a baby, it was going to be a beat. But actually Frida Kahlo suffered a miscarriage while she was in Detroit and was hospitalized. And so for some reason he decided a baby was a more appropriate representation than a beat, which to me feels pretty like a strange choice. Um, but that is what was done. And then I have an inset detail here. Um, and, and it could be nothing, but like within the placenta around this baby is that the tissue structure is actually hexagonal in here, um, which we see lots and lots of things around hexagons, um, both for purposes of tiling, graphing, other things. So I, I wanted to include that detail. Um, but I think this is when we're talking about post-human or the potential even of like out-of-body birth pods and things, like this is a very strange image. It's, it ranks up there with the vaccination mural of, of being strange. I was um, thinking the same thing about this artificial way of uh, having children. Yeah. Well, the one thing I would say is, is the, I mean, this is a, this weird combination of, of, life this is the second time i've seen him suggest that human life kind of emerges out of nature in some ways but um and then they would have known this at the time that plant the plant cells tend to have cell walls that are more um like hexagon they're not hexagons but they're 
they're more like uh, straight lines that are connected. Whereas most humans, we would, they would, he would have known this. This is would have been more circular and ovular um, in, in, the, in the cell shape. So I don't know if he's also suggesting the plant element that's connected to this human. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I would say um, one of the, the other thinkers that has, that I feel is really, really relevant for this moment. And I don't know where this person, where she is on the pandemic framing, but Sylvia Federici really helped inform my thinking a lot around like social reproduction and capitalism and women. Like in the seventies, she led this push for like wages for housework that essentially capitalism runs on the work of women that is unwaged largely. And that if you actually had to pay for social reproduction, like none, the whole system wouldn't work. And so for me, like this, the focus on the harvest of children, like within this industrial paradigm um, is being disconnected from women and literally being like a harvest with plows next to produce is, is a very interesting choice. Um, this is, this is a painting that, um, Kalu painted of around her miscarriage. And, and it's interesting because in the background, there is this industrial like landscape, this, this wasteland. So it's, it's quite painful image. Um, so, and I'm just going to go through again. So that this situates actually, um, Andy, you can see now the poison gas is opposite the vaccination mural. So that's its relation. The, the vaccination is on the right and the, the poison gas and the sulfur is on the left. Um, so just to touch, we've talked about the vaccination mural quite a bit already, uh, but just here is the technology, um, the, the description where they talk about um, it being like a nativity and that the baby is based on the Lindbergh baby. Again, we have these strange aviation connections. Uh, the, the Mary figure is uh, Jean Harlow and uh, the, the father figure is uh, William Valentiner, the, uh, uh, the museum director. And then you have the scientist wise man, again, the, the religion of scientism, um, Catholic, Protestant and Jew in the background do, working on the vaccines. And so that, that was very controversial at the time. This is just the image of it again. Um, and just touching base here is just, this is Valentina. This is the picture of, you know, I just have the documentation of who these folks are. Um, he was very influential in um, guiding the Fords about their acquisition purchases and many of the elite of Detroit on what art was, was good to be purchased. Um, for me, it was really interesting that Harlow, she was very, new in her stardom at the time. Uh, she had just come out with this movie, Hell's Angels, uh, which was directed by Howard Hughes. And again, there's this aviation connection with the Lindbergh baby. And I don't know exactly what to make of it, but to me, it it feels unusual other than that these were current events and, and people that were in the news that, that there was a lot of aviation. Um, this, this I, would, I would be interested in what you guys think. A lot of the, the imagery here and in the other piece uh, about California, they, they, they use Aztec and Toltec imagery. Um, the twinning element is important here. This is a central piece of one of the large murals and it's a stamping machine. And it said it was chosen to represent um, the, the Aztec deity, can you guys probably, Coatliku, um, the goddess of creation and war. So they're framing this, the, the, the narrative is that this is a, a sacrificial, like the workers are sacrificing. Um, and it is this central figure in the image. Um, 
uh, this, this guy is like, he's talking about the goddess of life and death and making this connection between the stamping press and the goddess. Um, it's interesting what I, what I, when I was looking up the, what the, the background of this, it says that, um, uh, Kuatliku's name means snakes, her skirt. <laughs> um, and you can sort of see that in this, the, the sculptural image. And a lot of people have sort of questioned about snakes and the intertwining snakes and DNA um, and what that means. So I don't know if that is a, a, a possible connection, but then this is a smaller panel underneath the main mural. Uh, there were a lot of, um, it was like a day in the life of the worker. And here, this is from the, the curator's description where, uh, I think this might even be Ford is explaining how the motor works. And when you look closely that this motor is actually a dog, it's like a mechanical dog. Now this is not like an Orozco scary robot dog. This is like a, a lap dog <laughs> motor. Um, but what I thought was interesting about this dog is that um, uh, Kodaliku's, she has children, including twins and Quetzalcoatl's, uh, twin who is the underworld entity um Zolatl, I don't I'm not great at pronouncing the names but was the underworld counterpart a disfigured twin um who would help take the sun under through the underworld and to to rise up every day um was framed as the dog god and so for me it's interesting to contemplate um, the symbology of the dog within this larger cosmological viewpoint, as well as the twinning and what that might, how that might resonate today in terms of nanotechnology, uh, rebirth. It says uh, in Aztec mythology, the dog God is the sunset God. He accompanies and guards the sun um, into the land of death every night. Uh, the world was said to have been destroyed four times before our present age. After the last destruction wiped out all life, Zolotl and his twin, the fifth son Quetzalcoatl, ventured into the underworld to retrieve the bones of humanity. And from these bones, they restored mankind. And it so just, again, that's a transformative, if that's accurate, like that that feels like a transformative element. And, and that's a lot of what this transhumanist post-human element is. I'll just quickly, Charlotte. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's okay. And 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 um, oh yeah, quite liquid. Quite liquid. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's. A and also agricultural, like agricultural fertility. So again, that's going back to the harvest and children and the green revolution. So, and I will also just add to this, and, and actually I'm realizing we're not going to get to Rockefeller, the, the, the man at the crossroads, and we're going to have to do that one too. So I'm sorry about this, but um, the frequency element and the dog and listening to his master's voice and thinking about what that looks like now, um, because the, the, the Rockefeller Center building was the RCA building, um, the General Electric RCA frequency, like that was the anchor tenant in there. And if you're imagining the dog listening to the master, and then I keep thinking about like Alexa, <laughs> Siri, like, you know, the new equivalencies of like who's listening to who and who's learning from who and the dog. Um, it's all very interesting. So, but again, um, Edward, how do you say it again? 
the, the it's a, this is the shortest it's, it's called a sholot this is sholot okay sholot um going to the land of death or the underworld to retrieve the bones um and the recreation of life is reenacted every night um so again i just keep thinking of transformation and and the transformative nature of the underworld, the occulted knowledges. Let me just read this, I'm sorry. Uh, Rivera in the United States. Rivera was ultimately pleased with a positive response and stated that the overwhelming approval of his mural by the Detroit workers was the beginning of the realization of his life's dream. The Detroit murals showed Rivera's passion for industrial design, his intuitive knowledge of modern technology and his understanding of ancient cultures. Their significant lies in the depiction of the relationship between biology and technology, as was Rivera's intention. Rivera presented the challenge for the future as finding the right balance that may assure human survival. And so I think that's the thing that stood out to me for this quote was finding the balance of biology and technology for a human survival. And I think this plays into somewhat the narrative that we hear today about you know, the Malthusian worldview, the climate change, if we don't get a handle on this, we're all going to die. Um, is that even back then there was a sense of using the technology to save the world, to save the future. Yeah, I think that's what promoted a lot. Even I have fallen trapped too. I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, I mean, it's hard because I'm not like, Someone who says, oh, let's all drive our giant gas guzzling cars around and do like, and in fact, many of the elements of like, if agenda, the elements of, around agenda 21 were actually agreed upon by consensus and that we, we, there were checks and balances about how it was rolled and it wasn't about creating giant fortunes and control systems for global capital. Like I like to ride bikes. I like public transit. Like I like organic food. I like many of these things, but like not the way that they're being imposed. So um, I think just, just sort of finishing up, this is the end wall here. Uh, these are power generation and I think uh, electrical power and steam power. For me, I think the future power is going to be this human energy harvest or piezoelectric, nanoelectric energy harvest. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff about the airplanes up here. The, the, the general framing is that this is the bird of peace, the dove, and this is the hawk, the bird of war. So you've got the poison gas with the bird of war, and these are the war planes. And then you've got the dove of peace with like, I guess, the good planes, the good passenger service, um, and the good chemicals over here. So maybe that's how it works, Andy, is you've got good chemicals on one side uh, with good airplanes and bad chemicals and bad airplanes, um, but also that the, the power system is is embedded in there. Does it make any more sense now? Yeah, I think, I think that it would be, that would have been on the side of progress that can be used for the good of humanity, whereas that right side is not for the good of humanity. And um, to me, I mean, I know the geoengineering stuff comes later, but by the, the 40s, they were looking into it. And then by the 50s, there was like quite a bit of documentation about using planes in terms of managing the atmosphere and seeding clouds, which are in the future related, not just to weather, but also to radar systems and telecommunications. So who knows exactly who knew what in the 30s. Um, so yeah, so I guess maybe we should stop you, even though it's your favorite painting. <laughs> 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 you're not, not going to trounce my favorite painting in front of me. 
I know, like not, not today, Nandy. <laughs> we'll do it later. <laughs> I didn't want to get to it, but that would be that would be rubbing salt, I think. I don't know. So maybe we can, I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on the, the last mad rush? Yeah, I, I'll probably go with this quote that I've been wanting to use for a while. That's again from, from Rivera, because I think this interest, if Rivera thought there was a notion of balance to be found, I don't think he fully understood how capitalism worked because capitalism is, is not about balance. Um, but I do think, um, I do think what comes to my mind is that that picture of the centaur you showed with a, a Roscoe, right? Like of a, the, the, the human connected to a horse. Um, and, and I think, I think uh, in some ways uh, Rivera had an idea of human. I think he was thinking about how humans would be connected with machines. Um, and he had this quote that came from his work in Detroit um, when he was talking about, doing these art commissions and the work he had done to, to prepare for this Detroit work. He goes, I studied industrial scenes by night as well as by day, making literally thousands of sketches of towering blast furnaces, serpentine conveyor belts, impressive scientific laboratories, uh, busy assembling rooms, also of precision instruments, some of them massive yet delicate, and of the men who worked them all. I walked for miles through the immense workshops of the Ford, Chrysler, Edison, uh, Mich Michigan Alkali, and Park Davis plants. He talks about it here. He goes, I was a fire with enthusiasm. My childhood passion for mechanical toys had been transmuted to a delight in machinery for its own sake and for its meaning to man, his self-fulfillment and liberation from drudgery and poverty. That's, I guess, the potentially he's speaking to. That is why now I've placed the collective hero, man and machine, higher than the old traditional heroes of art and legend. I felt that in the society of the future, as um, already to some extent, that that of the present, man and machine would be as important as air, water, and the light of the sun. Um, and I think he had this notion that that could be put in balance, that you could control that process, but that man and machine thing is not under our control. Um, and I do think um, like what, what Orozco was seeing in the early days of machinery coming in, Diego did not see, Diego Rivera did not see. I have not been able to see it until now, but it is that, that centaur that might be a magical creature is, is going to be taken over and will be taken over by the needs of profits, by the needs of the capitalists, and it will just be machine. It, I mean, I don't mean just matrix, they'll run the thing. That could be this, but I mean, we will have no say in it. It's going to be a, a prison. Um, and I don't think it can be controlled. And I don't think it can. My own suspicion is the whole thing is going to have to be dismantled. Um, and uh, I think Diego Rivera just didn't see what where this stuff was going. I think similarly, I mean, this, 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 under, this belief of Rivera's intention to find that relationship, the right balance between biology and technology was in my, my, my find, I think he was genuinely believed that there was an ability to balance this. He came from Mexico, right? Where he saw workers and he believed, I think that there was a possibility that technology could be used to be able to bring a change in the future. 
so that workers don't have to have the burden of doing the work that tedious, you know, work that workers could then put onto machines. Uh, and science and technology was a part of that vision. We're in this future now, and we're seeing what is what is more what's causing us more harm than good. For me, it kind of reminds me of the tension of um, I have a coworker who he actually worked in a in a like wood um, mill like uh, in Mexico, and like he was a part of a union. He advocated for some women. He got fired. He ended up in the military. But he told me this uh, story, you know, that on one end, uh, in Mexico, yeah, you have a better life in terms of community, people, nature. But you work one day and you work a week uh, and you, you, you eat like by the day, you know, for a lot of people. Like in the U.S., you come and you, you, you work, you know, and life sucks, you know, as an individual. But you work one day, you can eat for a week. No, like, I don't know if that made sense, but, you know, um, because again, we're, there's technology, there is more work. That's a reality, you know, that a lot of people migrate here because the center of industry, right, in, in some ways, you know, capitalism. And so um, that tension, and I don't know, I, 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 I used to think too that, like Diego Rivera, that you could find that balance um, in, you just had to take it over. Um, but more and more, this thing has a life of its own, you know, this thing called capitalism. And um, I just don't see, I'm not as optimistic uh, as Diego was. And I do think, you know, obviously he got lost in the, in his view, like he, he had access, you know, to different things. And in some ways, I think he, he felt he was out of touch. You know, like he got to see the, the industry and the, the the mesmerizing parts of it without, you know, seeing the day-to-day -day reality of the grind of the people who have to, you know, sacrifice themselves to the machine like he portrayed it. I guess he does some comment on that a bit. But, um, you know, I think that um, I don't, I don't know, like, like Diego, I, I do think that, you know, he's, we've been governed by scarcity has been the driving force in history and i thought capitalism you know um if we took over the technologies it produces we can eliminate that but we've designed cities that shouldn't exist you know la las vegas we've decided design uh or the capitalists have really because i don't think people have had a say really and you know we, we've designed desperate lives you know, in 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 and we fill it with trinkets, and we are in order to to drug ourselves, we we connect to this world willingly in some ways, um, and so that's why I don't know where the answer is. Uh, I just know that this is not it. You know that this is not the world. We're not heading to a good place because uh, even that utopian or like somewhat utopian view. Um, I don't think it's on our on the on the on the on the road that we're heading right now. It's uh in and so I hope I'm making sense, but I just I, I don't know how to consolidate those things because I am a very spiritual person now, as I've uh, detached myself from liberalism, uh, and you know this idea that 
you know, the educated class has to know for the future and progress. You know, I more and more look at the people that, you know, um, that look at the bees and know, know what the bees are doing, you know, uh, knowing the bees are not okay, you know, and, 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 but that, that's also a hard life. I'm not, you're not going to romanticize that like a lot of people do romanticize indigeneity and this stuff. Um, because I, I know that there are some good things that have been brought about, you know, by science and medicine too. You know, I'm not destroying everything, but I don't know how to bring that balance. That's, that's I guess, my point. And, and I'm going to continue on, on the search. I just know that what we're doing now is not it. We didn't, we didn't get a chance to get to the, the, the slide, but um, there was a, a quote a bit further along around the Rockefellers where they, they, you know, they bought, I guess they bought his watercolor notebook from his time in, in, in Russia and then, or Soviet, and then, you know, use that money to pay for him to come and, you know, be the second show at the Museum of Modern Art and, and Abby Aldrich Rockefeller said, well, you know, if you give the Reds a platform, then they won't be so red anymore. <laughs> you know, that was that was their rationale, whether or not like that happened. And I think for me, like when I when I read about that hunger march, to me, like, can you be an art like there's a point at which you make a principled decision? Um And like when when lives are lost in in by by workers, it seemed to me that that you know that that's kind of the, the the framing, and then you you proceed, and then everything after that comes with that point, like in the background, right? That you made that choice. Um, you know, I think when we we imagine, like for me, when I was doing organizing or, you know, was more active in local organizing groups in Philadelphia on the left. And I kept saying, do you mean blockchain socialism? <laughs> like, do you mean like, you know, cause I wasn't all about the plan stuff. I'm like, you're going to put it on blockchain. Cause I don't think that's a good idea. And no one understood what I meant. And like, maybe, maybe in the next couple of years, they'll understand what I meant by blockchain socialism. But even me, since I was so late to the game, looking at like, um, Allende and Cybersyn and this idea of like, cybernetically managed planned economies, but he even brought in Stafford beer, you know, the, the cyberneticist from the UK. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem totally enlightened to bring in this colonizing cybernetic force to run your economy. Um, so I, I, you know, I just keep chafing against this and, and wanting to know, like, I, I kept saying, like, even within my community reading group, well, what if the source of production is our bodies? Like, how do you control the source of production in a world of automation and AI and robots? Like, what happens when the robots are in charge? Like, where is the means of production at that point? Because I, you know, I was a newbie and I couldn't quite get a handle on like, well, what, what given where they say this is going, like, at what point do you have the control? Like, and, and that was before I even realized about, you know, our factories being bodies for nanomaterials. Um, you know, hopefully more people will get to the place that they can have that part of the conversation. But I think it's it's clouded by this idea of progress. Um, and I think the idea of progress is going to increasingly mean that the real world is subsumed within a digital world. And um, 
you know, at the at the end of this panel discussion today about wearable technology and um, Wi-Fi and, you know, there, there were these three panelists and I have to say two of them were actually holding the line pretty well for technology people. But there was one guy who was his aerospace professor at UT Austin. He's just like Todd Humphrey's like, he just was like, bring it. I want to turn, I want to walk around in the outside world in a VR headset and pretend I'm somewhere else. Like I just, and like the other two guys are like, but you know, Todd, you know, people like to have eye contact when they talk to other people. Like some people value eye track. He's like, man, but I could put like giant Disney eyeballs on the VR headset and you could totally engage with it that way. And, and then the other guys like, you know, say, well, I think it's going to mess up your circadian rhythm. You know, if you walk around and if you're <laughs> trying to like reel the guy and he's like, but just think you could make it better than your regular eyes could even ever be. And like, look what you could do to the homeless problem. You could just make it go away. Like he literally said that he's like, you could put a VR headset on and he talks about putting a skin on reality. And like, you, there would be physical objects. Like, I don't know if he would just turn them all, all the people on the sidewalk into planters. Like, I don't like literally, I don't, but that's, and then he's like, or be, you could be on a crazy, you know, barren planet and turn it into a paradise. And this is the mindset of this group of people. And, and they're working for the, the Black Rocks of the world, right? And, and, and the markets have all been seeded by these philanthropies, like the Ford Foundation. So, um, but at least in that panel, there were two people, even though they were in the machine, who seemed to get it, who still hadn't lost all humanity. So, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to that crossroads with a man at the crossroads the next time. I hear slavery in that by VCRs and homeless to yeah. use people, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to get back to that painting, but I, I, I definitely, I think our next coming together will be around Orozco. I, I, I really want to see his stuff and see where that takes me because this is definitely a mindset that that Diego Rivera gets you into and going into it, and and it, I think he, he's consistent. He's not. He's not being inconsistent. I think he is, his artwork repeats these themes over and over again. I would, I'm looking forward to seeing a different framework. Yeah, I'll get on that. <laughs> Can you give us 160 ones on that? We can... No, I don't, I don't, I mean, there's, there's material on Russ. I don't think that there's quite as many levels of complexity in the historic backstory for him. So. Okay. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Um, Alison Metal, you can find her work at Wrench in the Gears. We'll link the uh, her link to um, her site to the episode notes. Uh, amazing stuff. And we will make sure that we'll share it on all our, our platforms. And you can check out her own uh, YouTube channel as well, where she also shares a lot of the stuff that we've been discussing today. And uh, oh, Eduardo, and make, we might want to tell people that we're not going to do the Orozco, like, it's going to be like probably two weeks after this one. So just be on the lookout. I don't know. Should we say that? Well, you just did. Okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Andy. There you go. Just want to make sure. Do you want to clarify more? Or anything uh, just people should know that, yeah, they, we're doing the Orozco episode, but it's, it might be interrupted by another episode in between. Possibly the drama I just went through um, that yeah. we, where we talk about that. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, 
<clears throat> West Left is a weekly political podcast, a channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes where if you found this episode or on our blog at wet-s-left.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to the podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please share your favorite episode, rate, review, subscribe to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, BitChute, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, or YouTube and Telegram. If you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog, I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts Kenny Cepeda and Andy Lipson, and of course, our freaking contributor, Alison Macao. Thank you very much. Ciao, everyone. All right. Good night. Good night.